President, we have a national emergency. This is one of the things that we can shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, normally you can't do that. All of a sudden these trees started moving out of the way. They parted for me. And then I came out into this opening and there where I saw Jesus Christ. location buried deep below the earth you're about to make a connection to the signs of the times w dean shook is live on the air right now welcome into end time news i'm your humbled host w dean shook bringing you the news the mainstream media is never gonna touch and i'm proud and privileged to be able to do that thank you for being here you're all very important let me start off by saying thank you to our listeners on the iHeartRadio network. What a wonderful network this is. Also, our listeners on Blog Talk Radio Network and the Spreaker Radio Network. And, of course, welcome to our regular broadcast affiliates across this country. You're all vitally important to this program, and I appreciate all of you so very much. Now, i got to tell you, I was reading an article, and it was by Joshua Kraus, and it made a lot of sense to me. It was about people who accept tyranny. And it really explains a lot more than that. I think it explains why people who receive welfare benefits, for example, seem to be so happy with it. You might say, well, they're not happy with it. Well, they say they're not, but they don't do much to get away from it. I think it also explains why people who are happy at their jobs and achieving, say, just middle management. It seems to be because they don't have to be responsible for some of the most important decisions that are being made. They take the attitude that it's not my call, so I'm not responsible. The people who receive state benefits have some of the most stressful decisions of life, like finances, made for them. They don't have to be accountable for that part of their lives. While, yes, it can be limited, but the limits are consistent. So they don't have to worry about that part of their lives. They know what the benefits are going to be, and they adjust accordingly. Now, it turns out this may explain why supporters of people like Barack Obama seem to support him no matter what he does. If he does something that makes them mad, they squeal a little bit, but they don't pull their support because he's taking a very stressful load off of their shoulders by making all of the important decisions for them. It's the path of least resistance. Why is Bernie Sanders, a self-proclaimed socialist, getting so much support? Because socialism promises the same thing. Less responsibility for anyone who's willing to accept some government rules and regulations. Again, there's a segment of our population that wants this path of least resistance. 
They're willing to accept the loss of some freedom for what they see as an easier life. It's easier because they don't have some important responsibilities. This may also be why a lot of people say, let the illegal workers come in and do the work for next to nothing, so the corporations can make more money, then let the government raise corporate taxes. This is the mantra of paying their fair share to finance all of these benefit programs. Wealth redistribution. And some of them say, while you're at it, you can make my life easier if I don't have to show up for these pesky parent-teacher conferences. So please, educate my child, and you decide what they should learn. I don't want to have to teach them about sex or marriage. You should teach them that in school. And because you don't give me enough money to do all the things that I want to do, then you should also feed them through your free lunch program, even when there's no school. And also, pay my student loan for me, would you? And since I can't afford a phone, would you give me a free phone? and some rent assistance to go along with that electric bill assistance. I need all of that so I have time to go to the food bank right after I get my nails done. There's a large segment of our population that while they won't admit it, this is the way they live their lives and they don't do anything to change it. Well, when I read this article by Joshua, it really made a lot of sense to me about why people accept tyranny. Here's what Joshua says. He says, we all know Americans descending into a police state. Many have wondered how it all came to this. The easiest answer to that question is that we let it happen. No matter how brutal a regime may be, tyrants never come to power unless they gain the approval or at least the indifference consent of the people. So the real question is, how come so many people seem absolutely complacent in the face of our crumbling cultural values and the steady march of tyranny. Even worse, how can so many people revel in it? It seems like the number of people who truly value freedom are severely outnumbered by idiots and power-tripping busybodies. Now granted, the number of people who want to be free has grown in the recent years, but they're still few and far between when compared to the glut of the masses that we share the world with. And here's the answer to the awful question, and the dirty truth that most people can't bring themselves to admit to. Most people love freedom, but only as an idea. They like the idea that they can do whatever they want. They admire the rugged individualist, and, and everyone loves underdogs and rebels. In other words, people love the banners and the symbols of freedom, but do they love freedom in practice? I would argue that no, many of them don't. As strange as it may sound, most people really struggle with having freedom. Let me give an example. How about in the field of marketing? In the year 2000, two psychologists conducted a study on how the number of choices we have affects our behavior. They went to a supermarket. They displayed 24 different gourmet jams on a table. They provided a $1 coupon to see how much interest it gained. They did the same thing the next day, but instead of 24 jars of jam, there were only six. Now, the large display attracted a lot of interest, but the small display got 10 times as many sales. So maybe you think the study is inconsequential, but I wouldn't blame you for thinking that. So let me share another case that will clarify this point. One of the psychologists who conducted the study 
did another study on the differences between end-of-life care in the United States and France. She interviewed patients in both countries who had children on life support. In France, the doctors make the decision as to whether or not a child is taken off of life support. In the United States, it's the parent's decision. Now, she talked to these parents a year after their children had died. The American parents were much more distraught over their decision to pull the plug. They still had nagging doubts about whether it was the right decision to make. They felt like they had executed their child. The French parents, on the other hand, didn't feel nearly as bad about the situation. They were well on their way to coping with the tragedy. And the point that's being made here is that most people don't like having choices. Despite how much they'll argue to the contrary, the more choices they're given, the more likely they are to not like the choice that they've made. There's much more doubt about whether or not the choice was correct, which leads to some pretty counterintuitive conclusions. You can measure how free you are by the number of choices you have. Most people claim to love freedom, but in a lot of cases, these people are happier when they have fewer or no choices. I think most people are simply happier without freedom, which is unfortunate and sad to say at the very least. This is why so many people accept tyranny, why it will always be a problem for the human race, because tyranny is so much easier than freedom. It's acquiescence. It means giving up. Tyranny is for quitters, and it amounts to handing over the reins to someone else. Most people are happier when they don't have a choice, and they don't even realize it. However, there's another way to look at this odd human behavior. There was another interesting fact that was gleaned from this study. The American parents who had chosen to take their sick children off of life support still regretted their decision. But when asked if they would have had it any other way, most of them claimed that they would have still made the same decision. Their decision made them unhappy. They knew it made them unhappy. But when they were asked if they would have rather let the doctor make the choice, they all said no. And the right there is an example of people who truly want freedom, not just the rosy idea of freedom. Those who truly want freedom are willing to accept the painful struggle of having a choice in life and prefer it to the ignorant bliss that comes with not having a choice. However, it was only applicable to that particular situation. Would those same parents prefer to have a choice in every other aspect of life? Unfortunately, the kind of person is a rare bird these days. If you could ask anyone in the world about their ethics and political beliefs, you'd probably find a wide variety. But most of them would have one thing in common. There's always some part of their lives that they're willing to relinquish to a higher authority. And that part differs depending on their ideology. Most people don't really want the full freedom package. So it's up to a rare few who really want freedom without compromise to make it a reality for themselves. The human race will always teeter on the edge of a tyrannical abyss because there's an inherent weakness in our species. 
We're happier when we don't have so many choices or freedom, which means that accepting tyranny is easy for us. It takes all of the strength and moral fiber to rise above it. Because we default toward tyranny, which is defined by the lack of choice in our lives, when we stop caring, it's our natural inclination, just as human weakness and apathy leads to ignorance, violence, and hatred. It also destroys freedom. The political and financial elitist of the world want you to give in to your weakness and fall back on those easier instincts. They want you to give up. They want you to yearn for a simple life, where your choices are taken care of by someone else. They want you to be a slave. But do you really want that? Do you have the strength to make that choice? But what happens when tyranny runs amok? You know, our world is a culture of violence and death. Tyranny also has an evil side. Things like genocide. How do we deal with people or countries who commit genocide? How did they deal with the Stalinist era in the USSR? That was 1929 to about 1953 called for a mass execution and exile of what they called socially harmful elements as enemies of the people. Some estimates put it as high as 20 million. In 1953, before he could institute another purge of Jews and other enemies of the state, Stalin had made it onto the cover of Time magazine no fewer than 11 times. 11 times on the cover of Time magazine. How about in the Holocaust? How did Hitler rally all of these people to support him the way they did? These Nazis exterminated not only the Jews from continental Europe, but millions of others that it deemed undesirable. Some 11 million people, over half of them Jews, had died, either through mass extermination, deportation, or starvation, or overwork in those prison camps. This was all part of a brutal policy that much of the world either refused to believe or chose to ignore until the first camps were liberated by the Allies in the spring of 1945. This could serve as a warning that no country is immune from becoming a killing field under the right circumstances and with the right leader, as millions of Germans had to learn the hard way in World War II. Well, what about Mao Zedong? How do we deal with these people? He attempted a agricultural modernization and social engineering. And social engineering was really his main point here. It led to mass starvation between 58 and 61. The death of many former landowners, while not specific efforts to eradicate a population, was made and a genocidal in nature was the fact that Mao continued his policies long after they were obviously proven to be disastrous, thereby dooming millions of peasants to starvation. How about the Third Punic War? It's often considered the first historically recorded genocide in history. The forced repatriation of Cherokee Indians from Florida in 1830 resulted in the death of some 4,000 Indians out of 17,000 who made the trip during the famous Trail of Tears incident? How about Genghis Khan, known for wiping out entire nations in his quest to expand the empire? How do we deal with people like German General Lothar van Trotha, who wiped out some 100,000 native tribesmen in southwest Africa? That's modern Nambia. 
between 1904 and 1907 in what was considered the first organized state genocide. Saddam Hussein exterminating the Kurds during the 80s, which included using chemical agents against Kurdish towns. And you know, there's a lot more that we could go into here. These are just a few examples of the mass murders of innocent people. Is this because of tyranny? A result of tyranny? How do you deal with this? So what should you do with the nation that's killed more than 56 million of its own people and don't even feel bad about it? Why is the U.S. government given hundreds of millions of dollars each year to an organization that murders hundreds of thousands of babies, harvests their organs, then sell them to medical researchers? I think everyone has seen this extremely disturbing video that was just released about a top Planned Parenthood executive coldly discussing the sale of aborted baby parts over lunch. But now that this has been revealed, will America do anything about it? The purchase and sale of human body parts is a felony according to federal law. The commercial trafficking of aborted baby parts is punishable by up to 10 years in prison and or a $500,000 fine. So will anything happen to Planned Parenthood and the executives involved in this illegal activity? Or will Planned Parenthood just continue to collect hundreds of millions of dollars from the federal government, that's your tax dollars, every single year? I think we all know what the answer to that's going to be. It'll be yet another reason why America will deserve every ounce of the judgment that's about to hit this nation. And what will our leaders do? For now, they're promising to investigate and conduct hearings. Here's what Fox News said. Nothing is more precious than life, especially an unborn child. House Speaker John Boehner said in a statement, when anyone diminishes an unborn child, we're all hurt, irreversibly so. When an organization monetizes an unborn child, and with the cavalier attitude portrayed in this horrific video, we must all act. So what's he going to do? He said, as a start, I have asked our relevant committees to take a look into this matter. Oh, say it isn't so. You can have them look into the matter. Well, Boehner also urged President Obama to denounce and stop these gruesome practices. Well, what does President Obama say about it? Pro-life members of the House held a press conference Wednesday afternoon and likewise backed congressional hearings on the matter. Harsh, harsh. Already the House Energy and Commerce and Judiciary Committees have announced an investigation. Oh, wow. But will anything ever come from this? I think we all know the answer to that. Even though the blood of more than 56 million babies has drenched our soil... Most Americans have quit caring about the issue of abortion a long time ago. That's why I say when judgment comes to America, we're going to deserve every bit of it. Let me share some stats that you may not be aware of. When you total up all forms of abortion, including those caused by the abortion drug RU486, the grand total comes to more than a million abortions performed in the United States every single year. The number of American babies killed by abortion each year is roughly equal to the number of U.S. military deaths that have occurred in all wars in the United States have ever been involved in, combined. Approximately 3,000 Americans lost their lives as a result of the destruction of the World Trade Towers on 
every single day. More than 3,000 American babies are killed by abortion. About one-third of all American women have had an abortion by the age of 45. Almost one-third. Approximately 47% of the women that get an abortion each year in the United States have also had a previous abortion. And it's been reported that a staggering 41% of all New York City pregnancies end in abortion. Most women that get abortions in the United States claim to be Christian. Protestant women get 42% of all abortions. Catholics get 27% of all abortions. About 18% of all abortions in the United States each year are performed on teenagers, some without their parents' knowledge. We're going to get into that in a little bit. One very shocking study found that 86% of all abortions are done for the sake of convenience. Planned Parenthood specifically targets the poor. A staggering 72% of all Planned Parenthood customers have incomes that are either equal to or beneath 150% of the federal poverty level. There are 30 Planned Parenthood executives that make more than $200,000 a year. A few of them actually make more than $300,000 a year. And Planned Parenthood gets more than $400 million from the federal government each year. Where does the federal government get their money? This is your tax dollar. Whether you agree with abortion or not, your money's going to Planned Parenthood. 78% of all abortions in New York City are performed on African Americans and Hispanic babies. 78%. According to Pastor Clenard Childress, approximately 52% of all African American pregnancies now end in abortion. Hmm. Are you seeing a pattern there? Overall, there have been well over a billion, a billion with a B, abortions performed around the world since 1980. Now you heard me quote Stalin had killed what he called harmful social elements. Hitler and the Nazis killed what they called undesirables. Mao did it for social engineering. So what was Margaret Sanger's motives? All of the above... Well, here's what Margaret Sanger wrote in the Birth Control Review in May of 1919. This was right about the time that she started the Negro Project in New York City. She said, more children from the fit, less from the unfit. This is the chief aim of birth control. Margaret Sanger wrote in the Control Review in 1921 that the purpose is promoting birth control was to create a race of thoroughbreds. Now, at this point, she was just using birth control. Abortion was not on the agenda yet. But what does Planned Parenthood say today? There's a Planned Parenthood advertisement from the Dallas Observer on January 30th, 1986, that said this. If your parents are stupid enough to deny you access to birth control and you're under 18, you can get it on your own. Call Planned Parenthood. And then again, a Planned Parenthood employee Lecturing students of Roma High School in Riverside, California. This was April 21st and 22nd of 1986. Here's what they said. At Planned Parenthood, you can also get birth control without the consent or knowledge of your parents. If you're 14, 15, or 16, 
and you come to Planned Parenthood, we won't tell your parents you've been there. We swear we won't tell your parents. Wow. Well, there's a piece written by John Nolte, who has revealed the racist pro-Nazi roots of Planned Parenthood. He said, led by a mainstream media in fully motion radical blackmail mode, we just had a national debate about the Confederate flag with the news that Planned Parenthood is trafficking in dead baby parts. News our mainstream media is somewhat downplaying. The time seems proper to examine the racist pro-Nazi roots of Planned Parenthood, an organization founded by vile racist Margaret Sanger, an organization that receives nearly a half a billion dollars every year of your hard-earned money. Sanger was a birth control proponent who founded Planned Parenthood nearly 70 years ago. Her motives had nothing to do with liberating women or women's rights. She was a eugenist, someone who believed that through abortion, birth control, and forced sterilization could assist the human race in the elimination of the unfit. In a piece titled Birth Control and Radical Betterment, Sanger wrote in part this, and I'm quoting Margaret Sanger, Before eugenists and others who are laboring for radical betterment can succeed, they must first clear the way for birth control. Like the advocates of birth control, the eugenists, for instance, are seeking to assist the race toward the elimination of the unfit. Both are seeking a single end, but they lay emphasis upon different methods. Eugenicists emphasize the mating of healthy couples for the conscious purpose of producing healthy children. The sterilization of the unfit to prevent their populating the world with their kind, and they may perhaps agree with us on the contraception is a necessary measure among the masses of the workers, where wages don't keep pace with the growth of the family and its necessities in the way of food and clothing, housing, medical attention, education, and the like. She said, we who advocate birth control, on the other hand, lay our emphasis upon the stopping not only of the reproduction of the unfit, but upon stopping all reproduction when there is no economic means of support, proper care for those who are born in health. The eugenist also believes that a woman should bear as many healthy children as possible as a duty to the state. We hold that the world is already overpopulated. Eugenists imply or insist that a woman's first duty is to the state. We contend that her duty to herself is her duty to the state. Who were the unfit? Sanger laid it out in 1938 when she praised Nazi Germany's sterilization policies. The unfit included those suffering from feeble-mindedness, circular insanity, heredity epilepsy, heredity blindness or deafness, or grave heredity bodily deformities, and chronic alcoholism. She said, surely everyone will agree that the children of parents so afflicted are no contribution to the nation, for even if they do not inherit these defects, their children of parents so handicapped that life will give them little, owing to them necessarily bad environment. There were 1,700 special courts, 27 higher courts in Germany to review the cases certified for sterilization there. She said the right of the individual could be equally well safeguarded here, 
but in no case should the rights of society on which he or she is a member be disregarded. Here are the unspeakable things that Sanger published about black people in an essay titled, What Every Single Girl Should Know. She said it's said that the aboriginal Australian, the lowest known species of the human family, just a step higher than the chimpanzee in brain development, has so little sexual control that police authority alone prevents him from obtaining sexual satisfaction on the streets. According to one writer, the rapist has just enough brain development to rise him above the animal, but like the animal, when in heat, knows no law except nature, which impels him to procreate whatever the result. Every normal man and woman has the power to control and direct his sexual impulse. Men and women who have it in control and use their brain cells in deep thinking are never sensual. Sanger's Planned Parenthood racist history, it's not a secret. For obvious political reasons, it's not widely reported by the same media that obsesses over the Confederate flag. Hillary Clinton's aware of Sanger's past. In fact, the Federalist noted today that in 2009, Clinton sang many praises about the racist pro-Nazi eugenists. Here's what Hillary Clinton said in an annual meeting of Planned Parenthood where she received an award. This is not very good audio, but listen to this clip. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be back in Houston with so many friends and to have an opportunity to participate in the Planned Parenthood annual meeting. I have to tell you that um, it was a great privilege when I was told that I would receive this award. Uh, I admire Margaret Sanger enormously her courage, her tenacity, her vision. Another of my great friends, Alan Chesler, is here who wrote a magnificent biography of Margaret Sanger called Woman of Valor. And when I think about what she did all those years ago in Brooklyn, taking on archetypes, taking on attitudes and accusations flowing from all directions, I am really in awe of her. And there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from her life and from the cause she launched and fought for and sacrificed so greatly. But far too many women are still denied critical access to reproductive health care and safe childbirth. All the laws we've passed don't count for much if they're not enforced. Rights have to exist in practice not just on paper. Laws have to be backed up with resources and political will. And deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. As I... As I have said, and as I believe, the advancement of the full participation of women and girls in every aspect of their societies is the great unfinished business of the 21st century. And not just for women, 
but for everyone. And not just in far away countries, but right here in the United States. So when she said, we think about what Sanger did all those years ago in Brooklyn, she's talking about the Negro Project. That's where it was initiated. The Federalist went on to say that Margaret Sanger, for those who are unaware, was a vile racist and eugenist who dedicated her life to ridding the world of poor black babies, who she deemed the degenerates and defectives. She was a featured guest at the Ku Klux Klan and a huge proponent of the forced sterilization program of the Nazi regime in the 1930s. While the Confederate flag is down, the taxpayer-funded Planned Parenthood still stands, primarily in black neighborhoods, just as its racist founder planned so many years ago. Now, you know, I think it's interesting. No sooner did the House of Representatives pass a bill to protect babies from late-term abortions and ban them after 20 weeks, then Hillary Clinton fired off a statement slamming them for doing it. She said the bill was a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade, which has protected a woman's constitutional right to privacy for over 40 years. Then she said the bill puts women's health and rights at risk, undermines the role of doctors play in health care decision, burdens survivors of sexual assault, and is not based on sound science. And it also follows a dangerous trend that we're witnessing across the country in just the first three months of 2015. More than 300 bills have been introduced to the state legislature, she said. On top of the nearly 30 measures introduced in Congress that restricts access to abortion, she is clearly against any kind of restrictions on abortion. Never mind that doctors have indicated there's no medical reason for killing unborn babies in late-term abortions, and they're done on healthy babies for reasons of birth control. Hillary Clinton has a long history of pushing abortion, even on a global scale. Most recently, Hillary Clinton pushed abortion at a fundraising event in March, one year to date after she received this award from Planned Parenthood. Clinton said she admired Margaret Sanger, the racist founder of Planned Parenthood. Recently, she's even partnered with Bill Gates Foundation that supports abortion. The Gates Foundation, operated by Bill and Melinda Gates, supports abortion and the Planned Parenthood abortion business. President Obama feels the same. He knows the racist background of Planned Parenthood. Let me give you a small clip. Please listen to this clip. In 1939, Margaret Sanger co-founder of Planned Parenthood started the Negro Project with the aim of slowing and then reversing the growth of the black population. A staunch advocate of eugenics, the so-called science of purifying the human gene pool, Sanger viewed certain races, especially blacks, as genetically inferior and inclined towards producing human weeds. Reckless breeders spawning human beings who never should have been born. Sanger's strategy, still followed by Planned Parenthood today, involved recruiting so-called progressive black leaders who were persuaded that slowing back birth rates was a key to their people's future success and prosperity. A profoundly disproportionate number of abortion clinics were placed near the inner cities. And since then, 
an equally disproportionate number of our African-American population, more than 15 million, has been weeded out by abortion. On this fundamental issue, I will not yield and Planned Parenthood will not yield because we know that what's at stake is more than whether or not a woman can choose an abortion, choices about how we lead our lives. As the most pro-abortion candidate in American history, Barack Obama will make sure this weeding continues. Say no to abortion. Say no to black genocide in the Negro Project. Say no to Barack Obama. This is the Orthos Forum, and we approve this message. All right, I'd like to change gears here a little bit. If you don't mind, we're going to move on to another subject that's gay marriage and uh, how we as Christians uh, should respond to this. And some of you may not like what I'm going to have to say here. Let me make clear right up front, though, I am a evangelical Christian. I am born-again Bible believer. And Christians say that gay marriage breaks God's law on marriage. But this is coming from people who, in many cases, have also broken God's law on marriage. 67% of all Christians say that they've had a divorce. You know, and it's no wonder that so many people refuse to have anything to do with Christianity. They say, I don't want to be a part of a bunch of Christian hypocrites. And you know what? They're right. How can we, as Christians, chastise someone, anyone, for breaking God's law on marriage when 67% of Christians are doing the same thing? Marriage is the first institution created by God. God made the first man, Adam, but declared that it was not good for Adam to be alone. He then brought to Adam all of the animals which Adam named, but there was no companion suitable for him. God was revealing to Adam his incomplete nature. God then created woman, Eve, for Adam. He blessed them, according to Genesis 1.27, and their union gave them the earth to rule over. The creation of marriage occurred prior to sin's entrance into the world. It was part of God's perfect design for mankind. And through his prophets, God emphasized three very important principles here. That God is sacred. God hates divorce. In Malachi 2.13, says marriage is designed to produce children of good character. In Matthew 19.6, Jesus underscored the importance of the sacredness of a long-life marriage in his own teachings. In Ephesians 5.21.33, Paul taught... The marital relationship is to be an ongoing demonstration of the sacrificial love that Christ showed his church. So let's look at this issue a little more closely. Specifically, what does the Bible tell us about divorce? Now, you know, there's a lot of people who have got this divorce who have searched the scriptures for loopholes. And they make it very clear that they're going to spiritualize and cherry pick until they find a loophole that's going to allow them to divorce. Let's see what the Bible says about it. Malachi 2.13 gives us a clear look at God's heart for marriage. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. So you ask why. 
Is it because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth? Because you have broken faith with her? Because she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant? Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. He said, so guard yourself in your spirit. Do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, saith the Lord God of Israel. Jesus reiterated this in Matthew 19. He said, some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? The answer was, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female, he said. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, and I'm quoting the words of Jesus, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adulteries. So are there loopholes to this? A loophole is the question. Is adultery a state or an act? If it's the act, then when we remarry, confess the sin, continue living together, free from sin? Well, Romans 7.3 says, She shall be called an adulteress, which indicates a continuous action. The first marriage is still binding, which makes the second marriage adulterous. It must be confessed as in sin and forsaken in order for one to be restored to a right relationship with God. There are teachers who say a second marriage can be blessed. I want you to listen to this clip and see if you can hear how this guy contradicts himself. Please listen to this clip. Marriage after divorce. I understand it doesn't apply to the non-believer. However, I've recently heard that it's not biblical to remarry after separated unless it is with the same person. So, if you are a Christian and you are married to a non-believer and things get bad and end in divorce, are you now unable to marry again? Okay. First, the question says, I understand it does not apply to the non-believer. Um, that, I think I understand what they're saying, but I don't want to be confused. It does apply to the non-believer. Uh, you know, like, divorce and remarriage is, is biblically wrong except for one thing that we'll talk about, no matter if you're a believer or not. I want to read to you a passage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. This is Jesus speaking. He says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. Just because you may be a believer and you're married to a non-believer, Nowhere in Scripture does God give us the right at that time to divorce because they're a non-believer and you're a believer. In fact, it actually takes it quite the step in the opposite direction. It actually says that you should try to hold fast because because you are a believer, you actually sanctify the person who you're married to. Um, that means that God literally, there's, there's something there that God has singled them out that God is going to use you to make you one yoke, to make you both believers. So 
there's nothing in the Bible that says just because you have become a believer that you are a believer and your spouse isn't that you, that you have the, uh, the right to just divorce and to move on. Um, let's say that you are both a believer. Let's start with this. Let's say that, neither, let's say that uh, the couple was married and they weren't believers. They got a divorce and they remarried and then they became believers in Jesus Christ and are saved. Okay? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that at that, per- that that point that person should try to go back and rectify their old marriage by breaking up their current one. That would, that would be silly to do that. Um, why You can't make one divorce right by having a second. Does that make sense? Now you heard him say right in the beginning of this clip the same thing that Jesus said. Anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and mar- marries another woman commits adultery. Yet in this clip he said, but... Do you commit another sin by getting by divorcing your second wife and commit another sin? Or do you, what, get a do-over? Do you get a mulligan? For those of you who play golf, you know what a mulligan is? It's a do-over. Does that mean you can continue in your second marriage and be right with God, that he will bless that? No, it is still an adulterous relationship according to his words. There is no loophole there. He clearly says, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. If you're in a second marriage, whether you were a believer or not, well, in fact, let's get to this. Can God forgive your sin? Some people say that his grace and his mercy will forgive that first sin. And that's true, he will. But what did Jesus say to the woman who was caught in adultery? This is in John 8, 1 through 11, where Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered. He sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd and said, Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. Soon he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. Then stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Then the accusers heard this. They slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? She said, No, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Sin no more. He didn't say, Go and continue to commit adultery. He said, Sin no more. Stop it. When you continue in your second marriage, you're in an adulterous relationship and committing that same sin again. God's not going to bless you living in a sinful relationship. There is no loophole there. If you're a Christian and you're in a second marriage and you're living that way, guess what? You're breaking God's law. The same thing you're accusing the homosexuals and the lesbians and the transgenders. And this is why they come to you and say, we don't want to be a part of any religion, especially Christianity, when you're just a bunch of hypocrites. And when you go to them, when you're divorced and in a second or sometimes a third marriage, then you're being a hypocrite. And it's the worst kind of hypocrite. You're a self-righteous hypocrite. That's the most distasteful kind of hypocrite. A third excuse people use is the pre-Christian mix-up. 
Now, in this situation, a person's been married and divorced one or several times before becoming a Christian. Humanly speaking, we may be inclined to say that there's no need to break up another home. We may think that because other marriages were not Christian that they don't count. Yet Jesus recognized several non-Christian marriages. It says in John 4:16 through 18 when he spoke to the Samaritan woman, Jesus said unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast said well that you have no husband, for you has had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and in that sayest thou truly. John the Baptist told Herod, who was not a Christian, that it was wrong for him to marry his brother's wife. In both God's eyes and John's, the second marriage was sin. Herod was living in adultery. Marriage is not a Christian institution. God instituted marriage in the Garden of Eden before the plan of salvation was ever accomplished. Another objection is the word whosoever, as used in Matthew 19. This word is not just speaking of Christians. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians, that we're to remain in the same situation that we were in when we were called to be a Christian, but these people fail to realize the verses in between are not referring to the marriage, but circumcision of servanthood. Now you can go read 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 20 and see what I mean. So we might ask, what about the innocent victim? What about the husband or wife who decides to leave and the other really tries to work things out, but it just doesn't work. First of all, there's hardly ever a case where the blame rests completely on one person. Let's be realistic about this. But even if that were the case, marriage is so sacred in the eyes of God that there are still no exceptions. To remarry while your spouse is living is adultery. Some will say, well, what about children? But how was it in the time of Ezra? It specifically mentions children in that story. Children become the innocent sufferers. Every adulterous marriage and relationship can only add to the heartache and the bewilderment of the child. God's law of purity and holiness must be given supremacy. But we realize that God is the father of fatherless and widows. He will bless and look after those children whose parents are truly obeying him. What about returning to the first marriage after the divorce? Well, it makes it clear in the Bible that if one partner or the other has been with someone else and they are defiled and you cannot return to them. But it says in Corinthians 7.11, But if she departs, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Yes, there's a place for reconciliation after leaving your spouse. However, if you've been divorced and remarried, you need to consider the scripture in Deuteronomy 24.4. It says her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she is defiled. She had remarried another man and was sent away again. For that is an abomination before the Lord. True, this is speaking of the Israelites in the Old Testament of divorce and marriage. However, it's an abomination before the Lord. It was then and it is now. An abomination is something morally disgusting. We should not want to do something that's morally disgusting to God. Let's remember what Jesus said. If you're saying you don't want to leave your second family, you don't want to leave your second wife or husband, you don't want to break up the family, well, let's, let's remember what Jesus said in uh, John 14. If you love me, keep my commandments. 
keep his commandment on marriage. And if you're going to speak out about homosexual marriages, make sure that you're not one of these self-righteous hypocrites that's also breaking God's laws. Here's the bottom line. How can we accuse others of breaking God's law of marriage if we're doing the same? I totally agree that there are other issues, tearing down the traditions of marriage in this country, the breakdown of family. All of these are huge issues. But let's deal with them from a right perspective, not by breaking the same laws ourselves or being hypocrites about it. All right, I'm going to take a short break here. When I come back, we're going to talk about Donald Trump. We're going to talk about uh, how he's affecting the conversation. And I'm going to bring you some news stories about how this immigration is affecting everyone around the world. I'll come right back after this short break. You're listening to End Time News. Do you think the media is biased? Maybe they're leaving something out, or there's something they're not telling you. Now, you have a source for the truth in the news. W. Dean Shook, End Time News. Your connection to the signs of the times. GoDaddy offers everything you need to make a name for yourself on the web, from domain names and website builders to complete e-commerce solutions. We've earned our place as the world's number one accredited domain registrar by delivering world-class products at competitive prices and support them with industry-best services delivered 24-7, 365. We're proud to serve our customers from locations around the world. Sign up now at WDShook.com and get your domain name as low as $5.99 a year. Sign up now at WDShook.com. Go, Daddy. Go, Daddy. give you anything you like you want free college energy mortgages <laughs> whatever you like you have come to the right place why i'll tell you why who can take your money who can take your money with a twinkle in their eye a twinkle in their eye take it all away and give it to some other guy the government the government the government can the sunrise who can tax the, the trees let you run a business and collect up all the fees the government Yes. Yeah. 
Unprecedented times. Constant wars worldwide, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. They're genetically modifying our food. Increased violence as the heart of man grows cold. Ever increasingly tyrannical governments around the world. Stay connected. End time prophecy news with W. Dean Shook. Your connection to the signs of the times. Thank you very much for that break. I appreciate that very, very much. You know, I watched all of the Sunday shows, and I seen the old guard on all of these Sunday shows, these ancient politicians, career politicians, who are talking the same trash that they talk every election cycle, saying the same things, putting down the other parties, blathering about all kinds of stuff that has no truth in it. And I thought, these people are really trying to protect the old guard trying to protect the old process of career politicians. Donald Trump has really changed that conversation. They're saying he can't win because he doesn't have what career politicians have. He doesn't have handlers. He doesn't have all of these people behind him to tell him what to do, how to stand, where to walk, what to say. You know, America is not what it used to be. Things are changing, and these politicians are not changing with it. Now, whether or not Donald Trump has a chance of becoming president, he's definitely changing the conversation. And yes, he says some inflammatory things at times, like he did about John McCain. And it looks like some GOP candidates are seeing some value in telling the truth. Trump's surge in the poll continues because why? He's the only candidate who's willing to tell the truth, and he doesn't care what anybody thinks. Not that what he said about John McCain was true. I watched Face the Nation, and I seen them come on Face the Nation to prove Donald Trump wrong on immigration. And they did that by pulling up stats from 2012 and stood there and said that in 2012, in a study done on immigrants who had come into this country who were underage, the crime rate had not increased. So Donald Trump is wrong. Out of the 11 million, there is no increase in crime. Well, it's been 11 million ever since Barack Obama took office. We know that that's not the number now. That was the first lie. And then to quote stats of underage people that came in in 2012 as a statistic for crime, I, I, I couldn't believe he did that. And then had the audacity to actually say that the number of people crossing our border illegally today is zero. He claims it's zero. Bold-faced lies. You know, it's no wonder that these people are purging viewers. You know, I almost felt so bad I was going to offer to hold their hair back while they vomit their viewers. Uh, it, 
just incredible lies. I couldn't believe it. So it looks like some of the some of these candidates are seeing the value of telling the truth. Trump's calling. He's not pandering to the political correctness. Let's look at some of the stories, and I'll try to put this in perspective. Trump is calling for more Christian immigration. WND is reporting. Donald Trump might not appear to be the knight in shining armor that attracts Christian voters in the crowded 2016 Republican primary, but at first glance, at least, there's something in those steely blue eyes and mop of blonde hair. With all his worldly success in making money, he could make him the warrior of the right. Well, how is that? Trump started rising in the polls after making the comment that Mexico is not sending their best to America, that among those coming in illegally are a high percentage of rapists, murderers, and other violent felons. But that's not all Trump is saying. He's also speaking up for Syrian persecuted Christians. Though you won't read about it in the mainstream media, Trump has been making repeated comments about persecuted Christians in Syria and the difficulty they have in coming to the West as refugees or asylum seekers. At a speech in Las Vegas last weekend, Trump said, Those persecuted for their Christian faith by Muslims in Syria ought to be brought to America. And if he were president, he'd make sure they got a one-way ticket to a safe haven. That's here in America. He's leading the polls in the Republican pack. As of July 17th, according to a Fox News poll, a lot of the consideration of the establishment media and those in his own party, his rise to 18% support among GOP primary voters is now ahead of second-place Scott Walker with 15%. And you know that Obama is just privately having a hissy fit because Trump is bringing up immigration and telling the truth on it, completely contradicting and exposing the lies of the government and Obama and Hillary. Here's a bit of what he said in his speech in Las Vegas. Conservative Christians, real quick, uh, Mr. Trump, are concerned about the deterioration of this culture. They're concerned about the marriage issue. Uh, what, what is your message to them on, on religious liberty, on religious freedom? What are your thoughts about that, and what is your message to them specifically? Well, it's a very big message. First of all, as you know, I'm Protestant. I'm Presbyterian. Most people don't know that. They have no idea. And I'm proud of it, but I'm, I'm very proud of it. But, you know, one of the things I learned this weekend, and being with, I've met with a lot of national security experts and everything else, that if you're a Christian living in Syria, you can't come into this country. Mm. And yet, if you're a Muslim living in Syria who are not under attack, they can come in. But we have Christians being beheaded all over the world by ISIS in Syria and Iraq in particular, and those Christians can't come into this country. Mm. So you say what you want. I mean, this is really something. And that's a lack of respect for us. If you're a Muslim, you can come into the country very easy. If you're from Europe and you're a Muslim, you can come in. Mm -hmm. But if you're from Europe and you're a Christian, you can't come in, mm -hmm. meaning it's almost impossible. Hmm. So you tell me about religious liberty and freedom. The Christians are being treated horribly because we have nobody to represent the Christians. Believe me, if I run and I win, I will be the greatest representative of the Christians that they've had in a long time. Now, besides being an advocate of persecuted Christians trying to bring more to the U.S., Trump has also gone on the record as a pro-life and pro-gun candidate. On the issue of marriage, Trump told openly gay MSNBC host Thomas Roberts in November of 2013 that he was evolving on the issue but remained committed to traditional one-man, one-woman marriage. 
said, I, th I think really what you have is a very changing stance, and you see it changing very rapidly. If you go back 10 years or so, it's very different. I think I'm evolving, is what he said. I think I'm a very fair person, but I've been for traditional marriage. I'm for traditional marriage. I am for a marriage between a man and a woman, he told Roberts. Trump is also playing up his plans to beef up the military, unlike President Obama. The National Iowa National Security Summit on May 18th, about a month before Trump declared his candidacy, he presented his idea on the military, immigration, and trade. He said, did you know ISIS opened a hotel the other day? They're opening hotels. Can you believe this? And they're getting the money from the oil? Then we have a guy like Bush. He's a very nice guy, I think, but couldn't even answer the question about Iraq, Trump said. I'm going to post this story on the website. I, th I think it's worth a read. So who is it that's finally seeing the light, that sees that there's some merit to actually telling the truth? What a strange concept for a politician. Well, the headline of the exclusive from WND says, Rand Paul from Tennessee says to restrict immigration from Muslim nations. Oh, Obama's got to hate that. Breitbart News, an exclusive interview here, says that he wants to restrict immigration from predominantly Muslim countries after the Chattanooga, Tennessee terrorist attack. Rand Paul said in an interview backstage at a rally for his presidential campaign is holding inside the Hyatt Regency in downtown Houston. said, I'm very concerned about immigration to this country from countries that have hotbeds of jihadism and hotbeds of Islamism. There was a program in place that, that Bush had put in place. It stood for entry-exit program for about 25 different countries with a lot of Islamic radicals. Frankly, I think there does need to be heightened scrutiny. Nobody has a right to come to America. This isn't something that we can say or their rights are being violated. It's a privilege to come to America. We need to thoroughly screen those who are coming. He also told Breitbart News about another similar incident regarding foreigners from the Middle East who were placed in Kentucky via immigration program for refugees. Muslim refugees, no Christians allowed. He said in my hometown of Bowling Green, Kentucky, we had two Iraqi refugees who were led into our country who were plotting to buy Stinger missiles a few years ago. They got arrested and put in jail. But I think we're doing the wrong thing by just having this open-door policy to bring these people in without scrutiny. I'm for increasing scrutiny on people who come on student visas from the 25 countries that have significant jihadism. Also, any kind of permanent visa or green cards, we need to be very careful. I don't think we're being careful enough with who we let in. Sean Hannity asked Rand Paul why he thinks Trump is doing so well in the polls. Here's what he said. Now, what do you make of the emergence of Donald Trump to the, to the top of the polls? I think there's a hunger among people for who will tell it like it is, someone who's not a career politician. And it's really a fact that's also propelled us to do very well in national polling because, you know, I'm a physician, a career, politi career politician is not what I am but I've been a physician my whole career and bring an outsider's perspective and also understand now how horribly broken the system is and why we need term limits, why we need rules that say they have to read the bills. But I think there is a hunger for somebody other than um, many of the politicians just won't ever say anything. They talk on both sides of every issue, and their success is really in standing for nothing. 
And so I think people are startled when they finally hear someone who actually has a strong opinion. And Jeff Sessions is now starting to speak the truth. He said we need less immigration, more assimilation. said we should not admit people in larger numbers than we can reasonably expect to vet, assimilate, and absorb into our schools, communities, and labor markets. It's not compassionate or uncaring to bring in so many people that are not enough jobs for them or the people already here. As Coolidge said, we want to keep wages and living conditions good for everyone who's here or may come here. Over the last four decades, immigration levels have quadrupled. The Census Bureau projects that we will add another 14 million immigrants over the next decade. It's not mainstream, but extreme. He continued, surging immigrants beyond a historical precedence, said it's time for moderation to prevail and for us to focus on improving the jobs, wages, and security of the 300 million already living inside our borders. You know, there's other countries who were fed up with the Islamization of their countries, and this is out of Australia. According to RT, anti-Islamic and anti-racial protesters clashed in Melbourne, getting pepper sprayed by the police. Now listen to this. And you know, I'm still baffled why they call Islam a race. Islam is not a race. It's a religion. I guess racism is the new buzzword that applies to whatever they want it to apply to. Because they say if you're against Islam, you're not just Islamophobic. You're a racist. I don't know how, but you're a racist. Here's the story. Police in the city of Milbourne use pepper spray to break up scuffles between nationalist supporters from the Reclaim Australia movement, protesting against the Islamization of Australia, and the participants of an anti-racist counter-rally. The Reclaim Australia lobby is holding rallies in numerous cities across the country, which are predicted to attract thousands of supporters, including members of the nationalist movement, the events are also being attended by those opposing the marches who deem them to be racists. In Melbourne, the Reclaim Australia supporters managed to gather around 200 members of the Patriot Defence League who gathered near Parliament House. However, they were vastly outnumbered by around 3,000 anti-racism demonstrators from the No Room for Racism group. Police reported clashes between the two groups. They had to use pepper spray to try and quell the demonstrations from both sides. Officers added that some people needed medical attention. A heavy police presence across the country prevented the protests from spiraling out of control. So let's see if we've got this right. If you believe, like Reclaim Australia says, they want English to be the country's primary language, have the right to celebrate national traditions, and in particular, Christian holidays, also calling for so-called traitors who betray the country's values to be deported, you're labeled a far-right group that's attempting to essentially build a far-right neo-Nazi movement on the back of racism and Islamophobia of the government. Wow. Far right. Is that what the world has become? That what's good is evil and what's evil is good? Well, here in America, there's an exploding Muslim immigration and it's overwhelming the FBI. This is a story reported by WND in spite of Face the Nation saying that immigration is zero. The FBI failed to stop another terror attack, this time in Chattanooga. 
The pressure building on the Bureau from the president's reckless immigration policy may be reaching a boiling point, according to security experts. And the problem goes far beyond a loose border where some 400,000 illegal aliens enter each year. It's also the ease from which some from hostile Middle Eastern countries can get a visa. Under current U.S. immigration policy, an ISIS terrorist doesn't need to hop a fence or swim a river to reach America. He can enter the U.S. legally as a student or as a skilled guest worker or a refugee, if you're Muslim, as an entrepreneur or a tourist, and fly here in the comfort of a jumbo jet. According to U.S. Census data, the U.S. welcomes about 100,000 Muslim immigrants legally each year. This represents the fastest-growing segment of immigration coming to America. While some may enter with questionable backgrounds, the chances are greater they will get radicalized after they arrive. Take the case of the Chattanooga terrorist. He arrives at his parents from Kuwait in 1996 at the age of six. He attends U.S. school. By all accounts, he was a fully assimilated U.S. natural citizen. He was a success story just waiting to be told by Obama's newly created White House Task Force on New Americans, which calibrates which community organized groups like welcoming America to convince Americans that expansive immigration brings only good things to their cities and towns. But something happened over the last two years. At the age of 23, this terrorist traveled to Jordan and Yemen for seven months. When he returned home, he grew his beard out, started writing a Muslim blog where he had made philosophical statements that could easily be interpreted as anti-Western, his father was investigated for questionable donations to an Islamic charity a few years ago and placed on a watch list. FBI Director James Connolly's dire warning to Congress several weeks before the attack seemed prophetic because it applied perfectly to young Muslims just like this guy. The message of ISIS to Western recruits is this. Come to the so-called caliphate, and if you can't, kill somebody. Kill somebody where you are, and calmly warned Congress about this. Middle East analyst Claire Lopez said he told them, with obvious deep concern, that his agency is simply incapable of managing the threats now proliferating across the entire country, said Claire Lopez, vice president and research of analysis for the Center for Security Policy and a former CIA analyst. Even there. Conley was holding back on what he must know is the reality of this situation. We've been living among us some percentage of a subset of Muslims who may be legal or illegal immigrants, refugees, or, like this Chattanooga terrorist, a nationalized American citizen who feel zero alliance to this country and instead identify above all of the global Islamic mullahs and with the U.S. so liberally moving more Muslims into the country, about 800 new refugees a month come to this country from Somalia, arguably the most jihadist rich country in the world. There's no telling how many have been radicalized or are in the process of being radicalized. Said we have no idea there are hundreds, thousands, or hundreds of thousands across America today who decide to pledge their allegiance instead to the Sharia doctrine of jihad. And where do they go to feed on the poison of Islamic jihadism? Family influence? Muslim Brotherhood-dominated mosques? 
Islamic centers for online indoctrination play some role, Lopez said. But neither Comley nor the FBI nor local law enforcement currently has the legal or investigative tools to identify and stop these individuals before they take the next step. So is it a far right or a neo-Nazi racist movement to protect yourself or your family or to protect the sovereignty of your country, the values and principle that made our country great? Is it too much to ask that our government tell us the truth, to stop the lies and deception, the scams and the deceit, to stop the destruction of our economy and jobs? There's questions for you to ponder. Thank you for being here, and as usual, when the dust settles and the smoke clears, I'll be back with more Truth in the News. I am W. Dean Shook. Thank you. You can get these full stories and more at wdeanshook.com. That's wdeanshook.com.